So there are a lot of things that I wonder about as a parent. Things that magazines and Facebook posts and my friends' advice have me kind of unsure about. Whether or not I should let my kids cry themselves to sleep at night. Oh my gosh, that was about seven weeks of worry there. I did, by the way. (laughs) Don't hate me. Um... Whether I'm supposed to praise my children's effort or their product, I read like long form articles about that on parenting magazines all the time. I'm actually not, I think it's, I think it's effort. I'm not, not sure still. (laughs) But one of the hardest is whether I'm supposed to tell my two daughters that they're beautiful. I do, by the way, tell them that they're beautiful. But I feel very complicated about it. We're exploring the theme of beauty this month through the month of November, and we've talked a little bit about expanding our sense of beauty, about what music and art we find beautiful, and how we can make that broader or at least understand another person's perspective. And then last week, while I was out of town, three West members talked about where they found beauty in what I heard was a really special morning together. But the truth is, I think you just almost can't talk about beauty and avoid talking about the human form, beauty and bodies. There's an image on the front of your program. I had Googled the word beauty and looked for images to share on the program. And and what I got when I Googled it, just that beauty, I got page after page of images of thin, white, not too white, you know, like peachy, rosy white, <laughs> women with long, flowing, dark blonde, that was maybe a couple of them, almost you could call it brown hair. <laughs> Literally pages I clicked through, you know how you do on the bottom, the bottom of, of Google to see the next page. Then I went back and I checked to make sure that I hadn't accidentally Googled beauty as shown in thin white women with flowing, dark blonde hair, but <laughs> no. Actually, just the word beauty was what I had Googled. That's why your program ended up with an image of the word beauty (laughs) and part of a definition because I just couldn't handle looking at the images anymore. So here is part of why I feel complicated about telling my children that they are beautiful. At the moment... My children are thin, white girls with long, flowing, dark, blonde hair. Their hair, actually, it really doesn't ever flow because they won't let me brush it, so mostly (laughs) it just tangles, and because I'm that kind of mom, I try not to insist that they let me brush it because not having tangles in your hair is really kind of more my thing than their thing, and I don't want them to grow up with the whole thing about tangles. (sighs) So I have these beautiful girls. They're beautiful, not just to me, but if strangers who stop me on the street are to be believed, to other people out there. They are young, and their skin is smooth. Their bodies are small and lithe. They're white and blonde, perhaps most importantly, for the world. And I want so much both for them to believe that they are beautiful and also 
for them to not think that what they happen to look like right now, all of which, except the whiteness, is entirely impermanent anyway, is what beauty is all about. It, it gets complicated. There's definitely a movement out there not to tell your daughters that they're beautiful at all, never to have those words cross your lips, to avoid actually physical descriptions or adjectives that are subjective and instead to reinforce the, the objective, you know. Your legs can run. Wow. Your skin heals when it's cut. I say that sometimes, actually, mostly because I have run out of Band-Aids. <laughs> but your skin heals when it's cut. Isn't that amazing? What a great body you have. Like our opening words this morning to celebrate bodies for what they do, for what they are, not what they look like. I find this really appealing, and I do. I try to incorporate it into my language with the girls, even though that in itself is problematic because our body's ability to jump, our skin's ability to heal cuts quickly is impermanent too and not universally shared. But the whole concept of bodies as doing rather than appearing, rather than looking, has some appeal for me. Being beautiful, ugh, who needs it? Toni Morrison put it this way in her heartbreaking novel, The Bluest Eye. Along with the idea of romantic love, she was introduced to another, physical beauty, probably the most destructive ideas in the history of human thought. Both originated in envy, thrived in insecurity, and ended in disillusion. Well, that would be the negative version of beauty. Beauty is a bad road we would do just as well to avoid. When Perry and I were talking about this platform, he told me about a short story called Liking What You See, a documentary by Ted Chang, in which posits a world where most of the people in the world, it's science fiction. That's actually, if you knew Perry Bider, you would, I wouldn't have had to have said that. But <laughs> it is science fiction. It posits a future world in which most people have had the part of their brains which notices facial, human facial beauty. And apparently it's a, it's kind of a narrow part of our brain. They've had it turned off. So they've had it wired with what's called cholyagnosia, the inability to see human beauty in a face. And it imagines what the world would be like if we no longer had the ability to make judgments based on our perception of human beauty. It's appealing in some ways, that world, you know. Beauty has taken on, or maybe always has had, some kind of truly ridiculous importance. I was reading a, a study about the likelihood that we get hired for jobs and how much we get paid in those jobs based on our perceived attractiveness. And lest you think that this is a women's issue, <laughs> attractive men apparently make 5% more than unattractive men, unattractive, right? I mean, you know, in the same position, whereas for women, it's only a 4% differential. So, oh, on our way to equal pay. Good job, guys. <laughs> Beauty. Oh, God, who needs it? Some of us have had, perhaps, challenging interactions with beauty in our own lives, 
I know I have. I imagine few of us have escaped it entirely. As a young teenager, I did not manage to escape the grasp of that lure of thinness. I feel so lucky to have gotten through those years without significant physical or mental health damage. But I was a lot of years of carrying a calorie counter book and eating carrots at lunch. Just carrots. Carrots are fine. Just carrots. It was a lot of energy spent on being something that my body was not particularly interested in me being and something that wasn't, it turned out, that important for what I wanted in life. So I don't know, do we just reject it, the whole concept of physical human beauty? I'm not really talking here about about inner beauty, although that's a whole thing too. And it's sort of untangleable. I made up that word. It's untangleable, like my children's hair, in some ways, from our perception of physical beauty, I think. There are lots of people who seem to glow from within, you know, who if you examined their face objectively might not fit some definition of beauty, but who are undeniably personally beautiful because of the spirit that shines through. But I'm interested in that idea, that idea of physical human beauty. Plato, you know, our old friend, the philosopher, he actually had a whole formula. Your nose was supposed to be um, two-thirds the length of your face. That can't be right. Two-thirds the width of your face. I don't remember. It was something. It was a number. (laughs) You know Plato and his idealism. And here we are, still stuck in it somehow, with these Google images of weirdly sort of matching women. I actually have trouble telling celebrities apart sometimes, especially in their retouched photographs, because they have been so reshaped and refinished to fit this ideal that they end up looking kind of the same. It seems to me that there is something inherently good, inherently important, about trying to expand our definition of physical beauty at least a little bit. Like we could add short dark blonde hair in on the Google images, maybe. Lupita Nyong'o, as quoted in People magazine, I'd like to say I think this may represent the first time People magazine has been quoted in a West platform. I personally feel really proud about that. I'm not sure which I feel part of, proud of, but it wasn't before. It is now. So is Cosmo coming. <laughs> Cosmo's coming. <laughs> yeah, Cosmo's next time. Um, <laughs> Nyong'o says, European, do, uh, do folks know who Lupita Nyong'o is? She was, um, she came onto the scene in, uh, in American consciousness in 12 Years a Slave and then um, has become, uh, you know, she's now a celebrity and big in the fashion world as well as in, as in um, act, the acting world. So she said, European standards of beauty are something that plague the entire world. The idea that darker skin is not beautiful, that light skin is the key to success and love. Africa is no exception. When I was in second grade, one of my teachers said, where are you going to find a husband? How are you going to find someone darker than you? I was mortified, she continues. I remember seeing a commercial where a woman goes for an interview and doesn't get the job. Then she puts a cream on her face to lighten her skin, and she gets the job. This is the message that dark skin is unacceptable. 
there's been in the news around D.C. a lot recently, the, the news that Misty Copeland, who um, dances with American Ballet Theater, will be performing in Swan Lake with the Washington Ballet in the role of Odile Odette, that dual swan role. It sounds as though, from what I understand, this is actually the first time that both principal dancers in Swan Lake will be danced by African Americans. I think it's kind of depressing, actually, that this is newsworthy, but it seems to be. But let's be honest, Nyong'o and Copeland, too, are still within a pretty narrow band of beauty, particularly around body. Both slim, Copeland, the dancer, obviously deeply athletic, The same is true of the industry-approved plus-size models that are supposedly expanding our definition of beauty in modeling. They're average about a size 12. It's (laughs) the size of the average American woman, I think. I've heard from some studies. They may be a little bigger than many models, but their faces would probably still make Plato happy. Still, every expansion of what we think of as beauty seems at least a little better to me. Except that sometimes what happens in our celebrity, glossy world is our version of expanding the list just means that the ideal gets more and more unattainable. There's a quote from Tina Fey that's been making the rounds recently because of Kim Kardashian's, uh, look, this is like a great platform, people, Kim Kardashian, who even knows who's in here, because of Kim Kardashian's recent photos online. But the the quote is old, it's from Bossy Pants, and I'm not even going to quote the part about Kim Kardashian. Um, Tina Fey in her book, Bossy Pants, says that, first real change in women's body image came when J-Lo turned it butt-style. That was the first time that having a large-scale situation in the back was part of mainstream American beauty. Girls wanted butts now. Men were free to admit that they had always enjoyed them. And then what felt like moments later, boom, Beyonce brought the leg meat. (laughs) Really, I like Tina Fey. A back porch and thick muscular legs were now widely admired. And from that day forward, women embraced their diversity and realized that all shapes and sizes are beautiful. Ha, 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 no. I'm totally messing with you. All Beyonce and J-Lo have done is add to the laundry list of attributes women must have to qualify as beautiful. Now every girl is expected to have Caucasian blue eyes, full Spanish lips, a classic button nose, hairless Asian skin with a California tan, a Jamaican dance hall ass, long Swedish legs, small Japanese feet, the abs of a lesbian gym owner, the hips of a nine-year-old boy, the arms of Michelle Obama, and doll tits. So, thanks, Tina Fey. This brings me back to the idea that we should throw out body beauty altogether, perhaps. That we should all have those brain implants. That beauty has become, in this culture, a problem that outweighs its benefits. Those boxes we try to fit in. Boxes of two-thirds your face. Boxes of race. Boxes of gender except we don't have those implants. We do have to somehow navigate a world that tells us, especially women, but men too, for sure. Think about every single male hero in books and movies. 
Can there be that much tall, dark, and handsome in the world? We have to figure out how to navigate a world that tells us that our value is wrapped up in how we look. I think about that when I tell my girls that they're beautiful. I think about the importance of how they hear it from me, of how they hear me talk about beauty and bodies. Casey Edwards uh, is a writer and blogger around mothering and parenting. She writes poignantly, Dear Mom, I was seven when I discovered that you were fat, ugly, and horrible. Up until that point, I had believed that you were beautiful in every sense of the word. But all of that changed when one, la- one night we were dressed up for a party and you said to me, Look at you, so thin, beautiful, and lovely, and look at me, fat, ugly, and horrible. I learned you must be fat because mothers don't lie. Fat is ugly and horrible. When I grow up, I'll look like you, and therefore I will be fat, ugly, and horrible too. So I try so hard not to do that. When I tell my daughters they're beautiful, when I talk about myself, I try so hard not to talk down about my own body or let my husband talk down about his in front of the girls. Even though I worry that it looks like Joanna has my chin, which is also my mother's chin, and which I learned early on isn't really a chin that you want, apparently. I mentioned this this morning to Melissa Sinclair, our, uh, our director of religious education, and she looked at me and said, what kind of looks like a human chin? I don't really get it. <laughs> right. <laughs> And the thing is, when I tell my daughters they're beautiful, when I think they are, it's not because of any of those reasons. It doesn't have a single thing to do with their chin. They're beautiful because they're my girls, because they look like me and like their father, because they smile at me and their eyes have a mischievous little twinkle. They look so naughty. (laughs) Because their cheeks get bright red when they run outside. Some of it, I suppose, is inner beauty, you know, shining through. But a lot of it is relationship, I think. It's because I love them, and they're familiar to me, and that looks beautiful. There's a Sweet Honey song, Sweet Honey and the Rock song, that I've always loved. There are no mirrors in my Nana's house. There's a great children's book of it, too, actually. There are no mirrors in my Nana's house. The beauty and everything was in her eyes. She talks about, about her Nana seeing the beauty in her and not knowing that her face wasn't right, according to cultural standards. That's what I want for my daughters, I think. I want them to feel beautiful in the sense of feeling loved, maybe, to find joy and pleasure in how they look, in their bodies, and how they feel about them. I posted on Facebook about this and got a lot of response from many of you. And one person sent me a message and said I could share it here. She wrote, I've always loved my body as a child, as a teen, as a pregnant woman in all its different manifestations and now maybe more than ever. The reason for my love, it works so damn well. It's created and carried two babies easily and then more or less spat them out when the time came and bounced back in days. That was not my experience of delivery. I just like to say that. (laughs) Then it fed those children. 
she goes on and on. It has given me pleasure heaping helpings of it, and still does. I have asked it to do some pretty wild things, which it has done also without complaint, though with well-earned and understandable aches and pains. What is not to love? There's this experience, I think, that we sometimes can get to, this experience of beauty in our own bodies and in the diversity of bodies around us. Another West person wrote to me about being in a locker room where clothing wasn't allowed, a part of a spa where there was no clothing, and the freedom of seeing how normal and beautiful everyone looked without their clothes on, the perspective of that experience. I make it a practice to look at bodies that are really different from mine, bodies with a different number of limbs or with scarring and burning, looking at those bodies so those two become familiar. And then, too, I think there's the possibility of moving beyond beauty when we think about our bodies, changing our notions of what it is we want to find in them. You might know the great Maya Angelou poem, Phenomenal Woman. It starts out, Pretty women wonder where my secret lies. I'm not cute or built to suit a fashion model's size. But when I start to tell them, they think I'm telling lies. I say it's in the reach of my arms, the span of my hips, the stride of my step, the curl of my lips. I'm a woman, phenomenally, phenomenal woman. That's me. A phenomenal body, different than a beautiful one somehow. Or as Mia Mingus, a writer and an activist, puts it, a magnificent body. Mingus identifies as a queer, physically disabled Korean woman, transracial and transnational adoptee, and does activism in all of those spaces. And here's how she puts it. The magnificence of a body that shakes, spills out, takes up space, needs help, moseys, slinks, limps, drools, rocks, curls over on itself. The magnificence of bodies that have been coded, not just undesirable and ugly, but unhuman. Moving beyond a politic of desirability to loving the ugly. Seeing its power and magic, seeing the reasons it has been feared. She goes on, how do we take the sting out of ugly? What would it mean to acknowledge our ugliness for all it has given us? How it has shaped our brilliance and taught us how we never want to make anyone else feel? What would it take for us to be able to risk being ugly? Whatever that means for us. What if we let go of being beautiful, stopped chasing pretty, stopped sucking in and shrinking and spending enormous amounts of money and time on things that don't make us magnificent. Magnificent. I like that, magnificent and phenomenal. Both of them, to me, get at that idea of expanding what we might want our bodies to look like. Jessica Valenti wrote in The Nation and went a little bit further, we should tell girls the truth I should have given like a language warning with this platform. Sorry, guys. We should tell girls the truth. Beautiful is bullshit, a standard created to make women into good consumers. 
too busy wallowing in self-loathing to notice that we're second-class citizens. Girls don't need more self-esteem or feel-good mantras about loving themselves. What they need is a serious dose of righteous anger. Now, here's the caveat that my aesthetics heart wants to say to all of this. There are people who are beautiful. Of course, we don't agree on who they are. And none of them, really, are that sort of airbrushed version, I think, that is damaging in general to men and women. The kind that I'm talking about necessitates some amount of inner beauty, or it looks sort of hollow, you know. But I'm not ready to say it's not out there, that there aren't people who just are beautiful the way art is. What I want, I think, is to be able to see that in all kinds of people, all races and sizes and gender expressions, all ethnicities and abilities. I want to challenge the media norms and the glamour magazines that say I can only see it in this little tiny section. But I'm not ready to say yet that it doesn't exist as an attribute. The thing is that going along with that, if that's the case, I have to be okay, too, with not being beautiful, that it's, that it's just a thing. There was a parent at my daughter's school recently who uh, misrecognized me. It actually happens all the time. I'm mistaken for this one other mother. Uh, the children all think I'm that mother. We get, luckily not my child, but um, <laughs> we get mixed up all the time. And she looks kind of like me. I mean, I can see it. And, and the parent said to me, the parent who mist, mistook me, this other parent, if it was a father, said, um, oh, you know, you must be so-and-so's mother. And I said, no, actually, I'm Marcella's mother. And, oh, it happens all the time. And, oh, we look just like. And he said, oh, I mistook you because um, she's so beautiful. That's why. And it was kind of a weird thing to say, actually. Although he was very nice. He's very nice. But it was also funny because, you know, I don't think it was true, really. I made peace long ago with not being the person you would remark upon as beautiful. And perhaps part of it, part of what I want my daughters to see is that our ability to be magnificent, to be phenomenal, perhaps to be beautiful, As usual, I get back to why it matters, whether we find ourselves and each other beautiful. What is the ethical culture message there? Because we spend a lot of time and money and worry on this question, whether we're tall enough or petite enough or white enough or whatever enough. So that's one reason it matters, I suppose. I mean, I could have, like, learned Chinese in high school instead of counted calories. I think the other reason that it matters, though, is that what I want, what we want in our movement, really, is for all people to see and understand their worth. And the problem is that in our culture, we get confused and start thinking beauty is the same thing. 
I think within the concept of beauty, and especially body beauty, is a paradox. You know, I love paradoxes. So, so here's the one part. Beauty, especially the idea of being experienced as beautiful by others, it's one way that people think they are worthwhile, but it's not true. It's false. And so that leads to all kinds of illness and disease, right? To equate beauty with worth and to get all wrapped up in not having the right kind. But then, too, beauty is also a way we actually see worth by finding what we love to be beautiful. It's a kind of attribution, I think. We talk a lot about attributing worth to other people here. You know, you don't always notice worth in other folks around you. Sometimes people behave in ways that might make you wonder. But in this community, we affirm, we attribute that every person has worth. And seeing beauty in another person and in ourselves is one way that we do that. You see what I mean? It's a, it's a paradox, this beauty concept. When I tell my girls they're beautiful, what I want them to hear Well, I want them to find beauty in themselves, or at least to find magnificence, and maybe that's the key. I want them to find the part of themselves that makes them feel just like Maya Angelou, phenomenal. I want them to know that I love them, and to see that that's part of what I'm saying to them when I tell them I think they're beautiful, that we have a relationship that what I see in them brings out in me a sense of their beauty. I want them to know at the same time that beauty isn't limited to the smooth skin they have now or the blonde hair, although that may indeed be beautiful. And I want them to see that beauty isn't at all the most important thing, but just one of the many things they are and can be. That's kind of a lot to put into a phrase when you're talking to your kid, you know. Makes it a longer comment. But maybe that's the key. Trying to look at all that gets tangled up in that phrase to find the part of it that means, I love you. And I see something in you that is beautiful to me. There's a poem that I tried to fit into my platform and thought I couldn't. But I think maybe I can to end our time. It's called Theory of Beauty, parentheses, Tony, by the poet Mark Doty. And I want to invite you to just listen and to think about the layers, the layers that that word beauty holds. To think about the paradox, you know. Theory of beauty, Tony. 
Somebody who worked in the jailhouse kitchen cooked up some grease, burnt it black, scraped the carbon from the griddle. Somebody else made a needle from the shaft of a filched bick, ballpoint replaced with a staple beaten flat. And then the men received, one at a time, heads of Christ looking up through streams of blood from his thorny crown, or death's heads looming over X's of bones. But Tony chose... For his left shoulder, the sign language glyph for love. A simple shape, though hard to read, he had to tell me what it meant. And then what seemed indifferently made, not even a sketch, became a kind of blazon, one that both lifted and exposed the man who wore it as he sat fumbling with a lighter, too stoned to fire the pipe he held using it to point to the character on his arm, making plain the art of what was written there.